very dangerous thing happened to uh, you earlier this week. The uh, battery on my watch went flat. Very dangerous thing to happen. However, I've borrowed Andrews and we are running late, so let me just start off. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, this is the last of our series of summer sermons on Jesus' tough questions. Most of them are tough questions because Jesus is asking us, are you so dull that you don't understand the nature of human heart and its inherent sinfulness? Who can forgive sins, he asks in Mark chapter 2. Who do you say that I am, he asked in Mark chapter 8. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Or why do you call me good, he asked the rich young ruler in chapter 10. That is, the tough and important questions in the Gospel of Mark are not the questions we ask God, but the questions he asks us. Because we tend to approach God and the Lord Jesus Christ as if they are the kind of criminals in the dock who have to explain to us what they're doing and why they're doing and justify themselves to us when in fact God is the judge and we're the criminals we have to turn the thing around if we're ever to get the right picture the way we approach the Bible is like looking down the wrong end of a telescope instead of getting the picture more clear we get it tiny and confused because we forget that we're dealing with God and we're but human the last question in our series is the question that Jesus asks not of us, but of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let's pray that we ask God to help us understand this great question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity of studying your son and his words and his questions. We pray that you'd help us to understand this question that he asked you on the cross. And we pray for this understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, 40 years ago, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Sydney, I met a middle-aged man there. It was a very quick meeting, really. I became quite friends with him very quickly. We were both doing a sociology course in the social work faculty Neither of us were in the faculty, but both that's where the sociology course used to be run. And there were about 50, 60 women in the class, and there were two men. I don't think I've ever met a fellow student quite as quickly as I met him. <laughs> Furthermore, he was a big man. I can't, uh, I'll have to translate for you, but uh, in those days, he was about six foot six, which means 195 centimetres or something like that. I mean, he was a a really big man and a heavy built man to boot and so you couldn't miss him you know there are all these young North Shore women doing social work so as to learn how to make a good living out of the poor and then there was me and then there was this big fella that was kind of standing in the corner I'm sorry social worker I forget social work you can't crack social work jokes they're not like engineering jokes whenever I crack an engineering joke the social workers come to me afterwards and say Philip you shouldn't crack jokes about engineers because they have got feelings, you know. <laughs> and whenever I tell that to engineers, they laugh again. 
um, and so I'm sorry, uh, social workers. No, they, they're not all from the North Shore, and they're not all. Well, they were then, anyway. Now, anyway, I met this man, and he got talking to me. And of course, I'm 20, he's 40, and it was an interesting friendship. He told me when he found out that I was Christian that he found Jesus one of the great spiritual masters that he would have loved to have followed, but couldn't. He couldn't because he saw that Jesus failed in his own spirituality. He said Jesus had a God consciousness all through his life, but he failed at the last minute. At the last moment at his death, there he lost touch with God and called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For at that moment he was conscious of a gulf, of a gap between God and himself. And so he wasn't the full master that my friend wished to follow. It was in this cry of dereliction and abandonment that this man was persuaded to give up on Christianity and become a Zen Buddhist. For he hoped to live ultimately and permanently in touch with the spiritual world and not be a failure like Jesus. Well, it was a bit of a shock when I heard this man speak like this. For I, at that stage of my life, had not considered what the cry of Jesus on the cross meant. I didn't realise till years later that that was the very verse, the very verse that would empty that man out of Christianity was the verse that would keep me in Christianity, would be the reason for being Christian, the reason for remaining Christian. But I didn't know what the verse meant. And so I say to my shame, that I wasn't able to share it with him. See, I hadn't realised what it meant to be God-forsaken. Now, God-forsaken is a funny old-fashioned word. It's not all that much used, I suspect, these days. Made up of God, forsaken. Forsake means to, to leave, to abandon, to withdraw companionship, protection or support, to give up, to renounce. But what does it mean to be God forsaken. I was interested as I looked at several dictionaries that, and saw this ray of, of definitions of the adjective God forsaken. An arid sandy region capable of supporting only a few usually specialised life forms. Any area in which few forms of life can exist because of lack of water, permanent frost or absence of soil. Any place lacking in something desirable. The town was a cultural desert. Devoid of all merit. Dismal. Well, I thought those definitions were pretty well devoid of all merit and dismal, frankly, because they left God out of God forsaken. It's how the word is commonly used, no doubt, although they go to explain it, don't they? A desert is a desert because of lack of water, permanent frost, absence of soil. But God-forsakenness is absence of God. Why do we use God-forsaken to describe a desert? It's typical of modern secularist dictionaries that they make no reference to God. You see, God is the source of all life and the source of all good things. When he renounces a place or a person, then all that's living and all that's worthwhile is withdrawn. You can't 
withdraw God from a situation and leave life and abundance and fertility there. It is the existence without God that is dead, lifeless, barren. Did you see that movie? Gallipoli came out, I don't know when, the 80s? It all merges with me after a little while, but hands up those who have seen the movie. I can speak freely then, can't I? Remember that scene where they're crossing the Nullarbor and they get lost and nearly die at the Nullarbor, heading off to Perth in order to kind of uh, enrol, and an old man finds them, and he asks them, what are you doing out here in the desert, you idiots? And they say, we're going to, to in, you know, enlist. And he says, why? And he says, well, haven't you heard about the war? And he says, no, he lives out in the desert. Why would he hear about the war? He said, the Germans are coming. And he said, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to come and they're going to take our land from us. And with that, the man looks around, the old desert dweller looks around and the camera pans all around the desert. And he says, well, they're, they're welcome to it. Because <laughs> out there, the whole thing's just, it's God forsaken. It's empty. It's barren of life. It's, it's nothingness. That's what happens when you withdraw God. You get death. Well, that leads to the question, why would God forsake anything or any person? Why would he give up his creatures or his creation? The Bible teaches that God's holy justice on human sinfulness is the one basic reason why God renounces and forsakes his creatures. It's because we're told God is too holy to look upon sin. You and I are fascinated by sin. Our movies, our novels, our plays, our, our newspapers, the TV news, it's all about sin, corruption, evil, immorality. In fact, remove all that and all you've got left is commercials, which is much the same. I mean, a good news newspaper, one which only told about pure, honest, lovely, honourable, worthwhile things, just won't sell. Because humans are not interested in what is good, what is moral, what is nice, what is lovely. We're interested in immorality and decadence, evil, murder, theft. That's what's on our heart. That's what we like to find out about. God hates it. He doesn't want to find out about it. It revolts him. He looks away from it. Compare the eye of a footballer with the fingernails of a footballer. Under the fingernails, he can tolerate as much dirt as there is mud that he, cracks, he, he scraps off the ground. But get a little speck of dirt in the eye and he has to stop playing. He has to go off and wash it out. The eye cannot tolerate the smallest speck of dirt. For the eye to be the eye, it must be washed clean by our tears continually and consistently. And the smallest amount of dirt is totally intolerable to the eye. Whereas the fingernails, well, they're only there to collect dirt or flesh from the other person. And that's all the fingernails are there. You and I are like fingernails. We don't mind a bit of dirt. We're full of them. A little bit more doesn't matter. A whole clot of it really doesn't matter. God is like the eye, absolutely pure. The slightest speck of dirt is totally intolerable to him. 
His eyes are too pure, too holy to look upon sin. And so where there is sin, he gives it up. Come with me across to Romans, chapter 1 of Romans, page 1131, 1131. It's easier to find 1130 and just look at the page opposite because the number's not there. On 1131. For there we read about the wrath, that is the anger of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, what arouses the wrath of God? Unrighteousness, ungodliness, unholiness. That's what arouses the wrath of God. But what does the wrath of God look like? I mean, when God is angry, what is he like? Does he lose his temper? Does he slam his fist down? Does he punch the filing cabinet? Does he yell? Does... What is the anger of God like? Well, he goes on to explain it here. Three times in exactly the same phrase, you find it there in verse 24. Therefore, verse 24 over the page, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, dishonouring their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason... God gave them up to dishonourable passions. Verse 28, 28, and since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. How is God angry? What does God's anger look like? What does God do when he's angry? He abandons, he gives up, he forsakes, he lets go. Because when you give sinful people up to sinfulness, you're giving them up to corruption, death, and destruction. For that's what sinfulness is like. Sinfulness is always antisocial. You want to tell lies? Okay, live in a world of liars. You want to steal? Live in a world of thieves. You want to murder? Live in the world of murders. Whatever you give people up to when you give it up to their sin, you're giving them up to their death. And it's completely just. It's giving people what they ask for. You see, I say to God, butt out of my life. I want to run my own life my own way. And so God in his anger says, well, then you go right ahead. You see, if he wasn't angry with me, if he was loving to me at that point in some way, he'd say, no, I won't let you do that, Philip, because you're going to make such a mess of it. You're going to be so destructive and you will be destroyed by it. So that's why our government is loving to us. It won't let us drink alcohol and drive a car. It won't let us be 18 and drive over a certain speed. It won't let us, there's a whole lot of restrictions there which save us and keep us operating. If our government hated us, they'd say, well, go right ahead. You do it your own way. Individualism is the antithesis of love and society. There's the problem the government has. How much freedom do you give the individuals and how much do you love them enough to put barriers around their own self-destructive habits? God, when he is angry, takes away the barriers and gives us up to whatever. That's anger of God, abandonment. And so the death of Jesus, we hear the cry of dereliction as he is forsaken by God. But hang on, 
Does that mean that Jesus too was sinful and so God withdrew from him? Does that mean that Jesus too was sinful so that he should die as a penalty for sin? What happened when Jesus died? Did God in fact abandon him? Or did Jesus lose his faith in his father? Just lose his God consciousness? What does the question on the cross mean when Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's helpful in our understanding of this question, of course, to look at the context. For in the context of the question, when it was happening in history, certain things took place which are recorded for us in Mark's Gospel. Too many for me to go through tonight, but just look at verses 33 to 39, page 1028, 1028. Mark 15, verses 33 to 39. We'll just look at a, a handful of these signs that happened in history at that moment. If we take the whole of chapter 15 and the end of chapter 14, you'd see many, many more of these, but this will be enough to keep us busy tonight. The first historical sign is that of the darkness that covered the land, which we read in verse 33, for three hours. From noon, the third hour, sorry, the sixth hour, across to the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. The time that you would expect the sun to be at its brightest. But it wasn't. That day it was eerie and memorable. For in the middle of the day, everything went dark. Now there's no explanation of the event in the Bible. Why did it go dark? Was there an eclipse of the sun? Uh, was there a heavy cloud cover that came across? Was there a dust storm coming out of the Arabah? No answer. No idea, because the Bible's not interested in the mechanics that God used to bring about the effect. Because that's not the important part. The important part is not how did God do it, but what does it mean? And any Bible reader can tell you what it will mean. For darkness and the judgment of God and death all go together, just as light and life and God go together. Within the Bible, we're taught that God is light and God is life. And the absence of God is darkness and death. So now in the middle of the day, usually the time when everybody is alive and awake and now in the middle of the day, everything goes dark that unnatural darkness over the land was foreboding of the death and judgment of God. And from the cruel and ignominious cross on which he hung, Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For certainly in the darkness of that afternoon, it looked like God had forsaken the world. But this was not simply a question that he was asking. This was a psalm that he was quoting. We have our Bibles divided up into chapters and verses. So I can ask you to be looking up chapter 15, verse 12, etc. Some of us aren't used to it, so we even give page numbers. The ancient Bible didn't have chapters and verses. They were added on many hundred years after Jesus. So in the ancient Bible, if you wanted to refer people to look up something, you just had to refer to a key element or a key phrase. It's not hard to do. 
I say, why don't we look up the in the beginning passage? Most of us would find that, wouldn't we? Why don't we look up the Lord is my shepherd? Most of us could find that one too. Why don't we look up, and so the first verse of the psalm was the title of the psalm, was the, the way of looking up a psalm. Jesus is quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, which was read to us earlier. A longish psalm that seems to be describing the historical scene of the death of Jesus. That is, Psalm 22 was the psalm that was on Jesus' mind as he died. And so it's one of the most important psalms for Christians to ever know and ever study. Shame on me that when my friend asked me at university, I didn't know that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And even if I knew it, I didn't know what was in Psalm 22. But this was what was on the mind of Jesus at the very point at which he was dying. And he calls out for us to know this is what it is about. It's about Psalm 22, what you are seeing at the moment. Well, it's a pretty important psalm for us, so let's turn back to it and have a look at it again. Page 548. 548. I must have preached with this Bible before because I just turned over in one hit, got it. That is freaky. I just mentioned it to you to give you time to catch up with me. You know, some of us can do Zodokos very quickly and some of us struggle over long periods of time. I hit page 540. You got it? Psalm 22. There are four sections to it, so let me just take you through it very quickly give you a thumbnail sketch of it so that you can study it yourselves later. First section, verses 1 to 5, though he feels God forsaken, he is praying to God his Saviour for protection. You see it, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verses 6 to 11, he is scorned by all the people but yet he still sees that it is my God look at verse 11 for example be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help humans aren't going to help him he's got no possibility of help from anybody else but he still is hoping that God will rescue him verses 12 to 20 is one is the third section and in this third section, there is this description of the crucifixion, really. Many of the very things that we read in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, you read here in this passage. Yet throughout this period of being killed, he continues prayerful. Pick it up, for example, in verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. The whole world's against him, but God's not. There's no point appealing to the world. They are without pity and mercy upon me. But God, please help me. Come, come quickly. And then in verse 22 to the end of the psalm, the whole mood of the psalm changes as he gains confidence that not only is God going to help him, 
but that he will be vindicated and be able in eternity to sing the praises of God in the great congregation of God's people. Pick it up, say verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. God will hear my prayers. God has heard my prayers. I will not be abandoned. He will rescue me even through death. This is what Jesus was thinking about in those dreadful hours in the darkness when he hung naked in the shameful public execution by crucifixion. This is what he wanted us to think about, to understand what was happening. He died still praying to his father, my God, my God. A psalm of faith in his final vindication, a prayer of faith to God. My university friend all those years ago was wrong. Jesus didn't lose God consciousness. Jesus continued to call out to his God. He continued to pray to him. He was not doubting God. He was reminding us of the continued confidence in God that he would be vindicated and finally bringing praise to God, even through death. But the crowd didn't understand this any more than my friend did. They thought when he called out Eloi, Eloi, he was crying out for Elijah, the prophet who in the last chapter of the Old Testament we're told will come before the judgment day. They hadn't seen that John the Baptist was that Elijah. They'd missed that. I mean, they were right to be looking for the coming of the kingdom. They were right to be looking for the coming of the day of God. They were right to be looking into the Old Testament to find out what was happening. They were right to be looking to see if the judgment of the world was coming and Elijah would turn up, but they were wrong. They were wrong in not being able to see in this dying man on the cross the king of the kingdom of God coming in his glory and power. They were wrong that they didn't see in his death the judgment of God upon sin in the world. They were wrong because they couldn't see in the crucified man the Christ, the conqueror, the king of Israel, the Messiah, the son of God. It's natural they couldn't see it. I mean, you don't generally see a king strung up like that and say, oh, he's the ruler of the world. I mean, the only people who said that were the Romans who stuck the sign over his head as a mockery, the king of the Jews. But that's the character of irony, isn't it? The very mocking was the truth. But then there was another sign of history that happened at that moment that people didn't understand. The great temple curtain was split in two, we're told in verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
It was a large, huge, thick curtain that finally stood between God and man, but now had been ripped open. I don't know how much you know about temples, but the temple of God in Israel, the place where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, was a little strange. For it was not so much the place where you met God as the place which told you that you could never meet God. That is, the doormat out of the temple, if they had a doormat, and I presume they didn't, but the doormat out of the temple didn't say, all welcome. You know, like so many church buildings around our land have a big sign out saying, all welcome. Not the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, we've got three different stone tablets that were affixed to the wall in the temple in Jerusalem, written in several languages. You'll find them in different museums of the world. And they tell us what was said at the front. And basically it says, anyone who passes this point has no one to blame for his death but himself. I mean, it's the exact opposite of all welcome, isn't it? It's saying, enter in here at your own peril. And if you did go into the temple, what would be the overriding experience, the, the sensation that you would first get when you went into the temple, do you think? Its size, its magnificence, no, that's not what would hit us. The thing that would really strike us right up the nostrils would be the stench of death. For the temple was an almost open meat market where sacrifices were being offered all the time. There were carcasses, there, were gar there was gore, there was blood. There was pieces being, being offered up in sacrifice. There was a, the smell of burning flesh and the execution of the animals taking place all the time. It was a place that screamed and screeched to you of death and you've just walked past a sign which said, enter in here at the peril of your own life. And as you drew close to God, you couldn't. You had to be a man. You had to be then a priest. And if, even if you were a priest, you could only get into the central holy of holies where God's presence was particularly. And there you were confronted with this big curtain. And nobody went beyond the curtain. Nobody except the high priest. And he did only one day a year, the Day of Atonement. When with all the sacrifices of God's people, he would enter in and plead for mercy upon God, who was willing to accept only the high priest of Israel, only on one day a year, only after all the sacrifices had been offered. High priests tended to be old fellows. And so at one period of history, they used to tie a rope around his ankle in case he had a heart attack inside because then they would just be able to pull the body back out because nobody dared to go behind the curtain, even to get the dead high priest out. At the moment at which Jesus died, when our Christ and Lord expired as the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, at that very moment, Suddenly, inexplicably, the curtain of the temple was ripped in two 
and almost like a blasphemy. Everybody could look inside the Holy of Holies. Anybody could have walked in to the very presence of God. The very symbol of keeping people away from God was removed. And now we had free, open, full access into his presence. Because reconciliation between God and man was accomplished. Instead of living cut off from God, abandoned and given up by God, we were now being welcomed into his presence. And then this last historical sign that we look at tonight, the confession of faith. The centurion makes it there in verses 39, isn't it? And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. What precisely was going on in the Roman's head, I don't know. We can't know. He may have been saying nothing more than truly this man was godly, this man was innocent. He may have been saying, it's a bit politically incorrect to have done it, but he may have been saying the phrase son of God that the emperor likes calling himself, frankly, this man's more the son of God than the emperor. He may have been saying, well, this is like one of the gods. For most Romans were polytheistic. He may have, seeing he was serving in Palestine, known that the Jews called their Messiah and King the Son of God. So he may have been saying this really was the, the Messiah. We don't know what he was saying, but we're sure what Mark was saying. Mark knew that Jesus was the, the, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what he says in verse 1 of the chapter 1. And now at last someone sees what we were told right at the very first verse. And when do people finally see that Jesus is the Son of God? Why, in his death. At the moment he is forsaken by God, the moment when he is abandoned by God, the moment when he comes into his death, he is finally seen to be the Messiah, the Son of God. So in the midst of the crucifixion, we have this final tough question of Jesus. Eloi, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A question that's not really a question, it's a quotation. A question that is the answer rather than the query as to what's happening. And so therefore it's a question that needs no answer. Though three days later, God gives the answer in the resurrection. What is the meaning then of Jesus' question? What's the meaning for God? What's the meaning for us? Well, the meaning for God is greater than I'll ever be able to tell you if I was preaching here continuously for the rest of my life and the rest of yours. But it starts with the news that the sin of the world was being taken into the very Godhead, separating father and son. God is not remote from the sin of the world. He has taken it upon himself. And the Father and the Son who have lived for all eternity in perfect harmony and unity are at that moment split apart. For the sin of 
the world, your sin, my sin, has put the division into God himself. Just for a moment in time, he who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, had the sin of the world placed upon him. He who knew no sin actually became sin, the Bible says. He who knew no sin and was made to be sin, so that the Holy One who is too holy to look upon sin, the Father closed his eyes and turned away from his Son. And forsaking his Son, his Son died. Think of these verses, my friends. What did it mean to God? Well, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. For Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friends, we will never understand this love of God. We will never comprehend its height or its depth, its width or its, its length. It is beyond us to understand what God was doing for us when he gave up his son for us what it cost him to take upon himself our sin, how deeply he must have loved us. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, forsaking his son, so that we, the God-forsaken, may become his sons. God-forsakenness, is ours. But because Christ was God forsaken, we can become God's sons. When I was a little boy, I was taught wonderful songs. I didn't understand them till I became a Christian, and then they flooded back to me with all kinds of, of meaning and understanding. As I've grown older, I've come to see that I still don't understand them fully, and I suspect I never will. One of the ones that we used to sing a lot 
and I still have the tune that runs in my head. How greatly Jesus must have loved me. Very simple. How greatly Jesus must have loved me. How greatly Jesus must have loved me. How greatly Jesus must have loved me to bear my sins, to bear my sins in his body on the tree. I don't know even in eternity I will ever understand how greatly Jesus must have loved me. But it's there in that cry, my God, my God, why you've forsaken me. Mystery of mysteries, cried out Martin Luther. God forsakes God. So what is the meaning for us? Well, the meaning of this question, this quotation, this cry of dereliction, the meaning for us is the very reason to become Christian and to remain Christian. The meaning is that we can now be saved for the price has been paid in full. The penalty for sin, my sin, has been paid in full. The sacrifice has been offered that will wash my conscience clean. God himself has paid the price that I could never afford, not in all eternity. God himself has purchased me to become his child. In my ignorance of the Bible, I couldn't explain that to my friend. That this is the very verse, this is the very verse that he said took him out of Christianity, is the very verse by which you can enter into Christianity. This is that verse. This is not Jesus losing consciousness or spiritual awareness. This is Jesus taking sin upon himself and offering himself as a sacrifice for sin and while bearing the penalty of God-forsakenness in his body, yet continuing faithful meditating upon the Psalms and praying to his father and knowing his vindication even through his death, especially through his death. My friend thought that God consciousness came through meditation, looking inwardly to himself. He didn't understand that the gulf between me and God was a moral one of my sin and God's justice. And the bridge of that gulf was God's son who was forsaken for me and for you. So do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you know God? Do you know the forsakenness of God that is in Christ Jesus? Every Sunday here, I pray that prayer that's printed on your outline. I didn't even bring one up here tonight, but Andrew will give me his. It's down there in the box at the bottom of it. I'm going to pray it again now. It's a very simple prayer. 
the first half is all about I, 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 and every bit of the I is about how bad I am. I'm not worthy, I don't deserve, I'm guilty, I need forgiveness. Second part is about what God has done, so it's about thank you, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. Why? That I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose again to give me what a God-forsaken person can never have. New life. And then the prayer is to ask God to forgive me and change me that I may be forgiven and that I may have new life. You see how this passage is the passage upon which you should become a Christian. What about you? Do you know God this way? Have you entered in through that split curtain into the presence of God, fully forgiven? Well, why don't you join me with this prayer tonight in the quietness of your own mind to God as I pray it out loud. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Friends, if that is your prayer, I know you'll be forgiven because God's son was forsaken so that you'd be forgiven.